Sirius XM Sports Podcasts presents Mad Dog's Daily Bite with Christopher Russo. And good afternoon, everybody! The American Prometheus, uh, the triumph and tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer, uh, co-author with Martin J. Sherwin. Uh, this book won the Pulitzer Prize in Biography in 2006. Uh, if I read you the resume of Kai Bird, we'd be here for three hours. So there's no need to do that. Let's just say that this is a this is heavyweight from a historical standpoint. He's a big, big-time writer, and he gives us a few minutes here today. Kai, my name is Christopher Russo. Nice to have you with us here today. How are you? Okay. I'm good, Christopher. Great to be on your show. Great to have you with us. Um, first off, uh, had there been a, before you undertook this project, which I'm, took, I'm sure it took you five or six years to write, had there been a 20, lot? 25 years. Uh, 25 years, my goodness. Uh, had there been, there probably hadn't been, there had been no definitive biography of Oppenheimer uh, in the period between, say, 1960 and the year, uh, you know, 1980, nothing in that 20-year period there? Not really. Some small slice of life books, uh, some collection of letters, but no, no big serious biography. Nothing at all. And it took you 25 years. And were you, uh, I mean, obviously, curiosity sees how in the world does nobody write a book on a guy who created the atomic bomb? Uh, did you think about this as a life project a long time ago and then just picked it up when you were 20, uh, 25 years, uh, 40 years ago? <laughs> what, gave you the, what gave you the inspiration, say, in the year 1980? You were, you know, in the middle of a great career then. What gave you the inspiration to finally tackle this great project? Well, I, my, my co-author, Martin Sherwin, who last passed in October of 2021, started this book in 1980. And, you know, he didn't intend to spend 25 years on it, but, uh, you know, the years rolled by. He went to one archive after another and did 150 interviews and amassed 50,000 pages of archival documents, and he just couldn't stop researching. It was such a great topic. And finally, he brought me aboard in the year 2000, and it still took us another five years to bring the book out. So it was a 25-year project, and Oppie is, is how they, his students called him, his nickname. He's just a fascinating, perplexing physicist, but polymath, uh, an incredible mystery story of the father of the atomic bomb. Oh, it's tremendous. Um, did you, I, I know you got a screening of the, I read the New York Times story about a month ago, Kai. So I know you got a screening of it. And it sounds like based on remembering those quotes, it sounds like Nolan did a very, very good job of following your book. Is this correct? Oh, it's amazing. I, I can't complain as the author. He, he is a great director. He has fashioned a brilliant artistic cinematic experience but along the way you just you know it's based on the book it really uh encapsulates the entire life of oppenheimer and it's historically accurate so along the way you learn a lot of good history and you learn about this uh complex physicist who created the atomic bomb uh, and I the think... story is very relevant 
Very. I will get to that in a minute. Um, uh, there, there's a lot of. I no, I didn't read the book, uh, and I should do that, and I will. Um, I did see the movie yesterday, uh, so um, it's fresh in my mind. Um, uh, there's a lot of components to the movie, like it would be for your book, but I think the morality issue of what this great group of scientists led by him put together and the unbelievable joy that they were able to put up with this and then the reality of what their invention caused, I think that is really, in a lot of ways, the, uh, the heart and soul of the movie. Do you agree with that? Oh, yeah, sure. You know, they were hastily trying to build this gadget, this weapon of mass destruction, from 1942 until 45, because they believed that the German physicists were in a race to build this weapon and give it to Hitler. So they certainly didn't want Hitler to get it first. And then, of course, the war ends in Europe, and the war in the Pacific is still going on. And so Oppenheimer convinces them that they have to continue on because any physicist anywhere from 1939 onward understood that this was a possibility. And so Oppenheimer believed that this weapon needed to, you know, humanity needed to understand what a terrible weapon this was so that the next war would not be fought with two nuclear armed adversaries. That would be Armageddon. And, you know, we're now still living in the dawn of the atomic age, and the story's not over. We don't know if it's going to end badly. We haven't used these weapons since Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but, you know, there's a war going on in the Ukraine, and Vladimir Putin has issued threats of using tactical nukes. It's it's just appalling. Uh, did... Um... So I, I didn't get that sense in the film. So Oppenheimer, when he's building the bomb, you think he completely understood the negative of having this kind of weapon in politicians' hands? Did he completely understand that between 42 and 45? He understood it after. Did he understand it when he was building it? Yeah, you know, he, was, he had very mixed emotions about it. I'll tell you one story. After the Trinity test, after the successful test of the first atomic bomb in the desert of New Mexico, just a few days later, he's walking to work with his secretary, and uh, Ann Wilson, and suddenly he starts muttering to himself, those poor little people, those poor little people. And, you know, it, she stops him and says, Robert, what are you talking about? And he says, well, the test, the gadget works, we know, and now it's going to be used on a Japanese city. And the target has to be a whole city because it needs a big target. And it's going to affect mostly civilians, women and children and old men and those poor little people. And yet, you know, he felt it was his responsibility to deliver this weapon to the to the policymakers in Washington and for them to make the decision on how and when it was to be used. And he feared that, you know, you couldn't uninvent this weapon. It, you know, the science was already known. It was going to happen. Uh, so he felt very conflicted. But you're right, after Hiroshima, he felt even more, the urgency even more of trying to find a way to regulate this this 
new technology, to contain the bomb, to ban it, to regulate it, to make sure that there wasn't an arms race. And of course, as we all know, instead we got an arms race and a Cold War, and we're still living with the weapon. Yeah, the scariness of this is Kai Bird, folks, who wrote the great book on uh, with uh, his fellow writer who's passed away on uh, on Oppenheimer. Great film, saw it yesterday, and uh, Kai obviously saw it, and he said that Christopher Nolan did a superb job of following the book to its T. Was it a no-brainer? I didn't get the sense on this. Was it a no-brainer, Kai? No-brainer? That, in fact, Oppenheimer, if there was going to be a Manhattan Project, that he was like leader in the clubhouse, that he had to be the guy to put together the group of scientists and be the head man? Was that a no-brainer for the U.S. government? Nope. <laughs> it was his selection, Oppenheimer's selection as the scientific director was most improbable. You know, he was simply a, a, up to that point. He was 38 years old. He'd never administered more than a handful of graduate students at Berkeley. Uh, but the general who had the decision to make in selecting the scientific director, General Leslie Groves, interviewed Oppenheimer at the end of a long trip out west, and, and he realized that this is a young man who was just amazingly brilliant and charismatic and ambitious, and moreover, he was someone who was a polymath, who was a physicist, but he loved the novels of Ernest Hemingway and French poetry, and he could talk in plain English about very complicated things and synthesize the, the, these ideas. And that's exactly what you needed in, in someone uh, leading the, the scientific aspects of the Manhattan Project. The, uh, was the crew that he put together, were those all his selections? Or was that crew also approved by the U.S. government, Kai? Well, it was Oppenheimer's decision to bring aboard all these scientists, initially about 100, then 300, then it grew to 6,000 employees at the secret city in Los Alamos. Um, but, yeah, he had lots of help, and, and he turned into a brilliant administrator. And everyone we interviewed said that it never would have happened without Oppenheimer. Wow. How about that? Uh, I, we spent a lot of time in the first 20 years there between, say, the mid-20s and, you know, right around 39, 40 of, you know, his left wing leanings. And we spent a lot of time on that in the movie after the bomb was dropped on that as well. It sounds like it was more of a curiosity thing than anything than, than communism was anything more. You know, it wasn't anything more direct than that. Interested, saw some things that he liked about it, went to a few meetings, gave some money to the Spanish loyals, loyalists, which bothered people. But overall, you know, he was really a loyal American citizen who was just curious a little bit about communism. Is that accurate? Let me hear. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's about it. You know, he was sort of pinko, not red. He never joined, we argue, the, formally the Communist Party. Uh, in fact, he warned his younger brother, Frank, who did join the party, not to do so. Um, but, yeah, you know, it was the middle of the Depression, and capitalism was failing and was in crisis, and people were looking for alternative answers. And, uh you know, the Communist Party of America was sort of on the cutting edge of 
such local issues for in Berkeley as trying to desegregate the public swimming pool in Berkeley. And so Oppenheimer got involved in that. And yes, he raised money to send an ambulance to the Spanish Republic in the midst of their civil war fighting against the fascists. Uh, so he was a man of the left, but he was never uh, a member of the party, and he never took orders from the party. He was certainly not a spy. But after the war, I mean, this is what's really interesting about Oppenheimer. He's, you know, the father of the atomic bomb. In 1945, his image is splashed across the cover of Time and Life, and, and he becomes celebrated as America's most famous scientist. And then just nine years later, he is suddenly brought down in a kangaroo court in a security hearing trial at the height of the McCarthy witch hunts. And he's pilloried and humiliated and stripped of the security clearance, and he becomes suddenly a non-entity, once a leading public intellectual talking about big policy issues and how to deal with the atomic bomb. And suddenly, after 1954, he's a nobody, and uh, it's a terrible downfall. It's just so this story is, you know, just very relevant to our own times, not only with regard to nuclear weapons, but the sort of the scourge of McCarthyism that we're still living with, that is still sort of provides the seeds of our divisive politics today. Uh, and it's also a story about the role of a scientist as a public intellectual talking about how we live with all this science and technology in our lives. It is. And it's also, you know, scientists do, you know, do what they have to do. And then once they do it, the decisions uh, come out of their uh, go to the mere mortals of the world, the politicians, which makes it very tricky, too. When when your partner started the book in 80, then when you picked it up in 2000, where I mean, I guess his grandson was alive. I mean, you said you did a million interviews. Uh, You're talking about government officials, politicians, people who knew Oppenheimer. He was it wasn't that. You know, he died in 1967, so it wasn't that far before he had passed away that you started this book. Give me your thought process of getting a chance to talk to all the people who knew Oppenheimer fairly closely there before he passed away. I find that interesting. How about that? Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, biographers have the pleasure of writing the most interesting kind of history, the most personal And it's a treasure hunt. It's a treasure hunt when you go into the archive and you go box by box and folder by folder looking for letters and diaries and clues that are uh, puzzles that you try to put together to figure out the personality and the chronology of events that took place. And you're trying to explain both the man and the history. And it's, you know, quite frankly, it's a lot of fun. It's very hard work. It takes, it's very time consuming. You know, most biographies take at least five years. My first one took 10. Um, But uh, this book is, you know, it's very special to me. And I'm excited that Nolan has latched onto it and written a brilliant screenplay, turned it into a major film that's being seen all over the world. And it's going to help to, I hope, 
jumpstart a conversation about our history, about the dangers of living in the atomic age. And uh, it, it, I, I hope it'll bring people back to reading books. Yeah, I could. Uh, listen, there's not enough people who read books. Uh, right on that. Uh, you know, the movie ends in the mid-50s. Did he have a good last 12 years of his life? You know, he was shocked and was propelled into a deep, depressive state after the 1954 trial. That summer, he escaped on a sailing trip down to the Caribbean, and ended up in St. John in the Virgin Islands. And uh, a little later, he went back to the island and found a plot of land right on the beach, and he built a very simple Spartan cabin. And for the rest of his life, he spent uh, several months of the year down in St. John, uh, sort of a beach hermit, um, with just his wife and, and often his two kids. And he'd go sailing, and uh, but it was, you know, it was a sad last. You know, only he he only lived until 1967, and it was a sad period in his life. Um, he had been, you know, publicly humiliated by the country that he had served so well. Yeah, and, and uh, he got caught up. You know, uh, it, it, this movie really is a four-part movie, Kai. It's about his early life. And it's about him, most importantly. It's about how they built the bomb. That uh, That is, you, you learn a lot about scientists and formulas and, you, uh, you, you know, plutonium and uranium and all that. So it's a lot there. It's a, it, I can't pronounce the words, but that's me. I get the you get the idea. I I saw it. And number three, it's about the the, the worry with the Soviets that they're going to get the bomb too, and that concern. And then four, it's about you know political savvy and political hunger. You know, uh, politicians trying to get jobs in Eisenhower's cabinet. It really is, in a right. lot of ways, it's a it, it's a four part sequel, and it's not just about the bomb. And I'm sure your book is oh, the same thing, correct? Exactly. Oh, exactly. The, it's not just about the bomb. And uh, the book is not just about the making of the bomb. You know, the book has doesn't have a lot of quantum physics in it. Uh, it's, it's about the, the life of this really highly intelligent, complicated man, his love life, his relationship with his very high strung wife and his politics and uh you know what what happens to him in in the 1950s uh you know Mar marty sherwin my co-author said to me once he turned to me when we were in the midst of the writing and he said you know kai you and i wouldn't have been spending all these many years writing this book if it was just about the father of the atomic bomb good point <laughs> Yeah, You know, it, it had to have an arc. And the fact that what happened to him nine years after he was celebrated as a great hero, um, and then he was brought down nine years later in this humiliating McCarthyite trial, that's what makes the story sort of a mystery. And, and you learn a lot about American history. You do. Absolutely. When did Nolan first contact the two of you saying that he was interested in doing a movie? 
Well, he actually was given a copy of the book in early 2021. And he sat down and read it and was captivated by it. And without even contacting us, he sat down over the spring and summer of 21 and wrote a 180-page screenplay. Wow. Just to, wow. Just to see if he could do it. Um, you know, it's a very complicated book. And as you've seen in the movie, it's a very complicated movie. You've got to go and see this movie two or three times, I think. I've seen I it agree. four times. I, I, I don't want to interrupt you on that, but I'll say one thing about the movie. Two things. My, I have a 20-year-old, 21-year-old who saw it for the second time in eight days yesterday, and he told me it was amazing when he picked up. And number two, see this movie when you're alert. You know, don't see this movie at 9 o'clock at night when you've worked all day because you're, it's, you're not going to pick up things. You've got to see it when you're alert. You know, you're reading such a comprehensive story. You've got to be on top of it there, Kai, when, you, when, you, when you're paying attention to it. Am I right or wrong? Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I saw things the fourth time I saw it that I had missed the first and second time. You know, he he's a very demanding director. He's not, you know, explaining things to you, but he's dropping clues here and there into the screenplay. And you see things and it's it's just it's lovely. It's just a very layered and complicated script. Anyway, Nolan, to answer your question, he wrote the script in the summer of 21, and then he called me up in September and said that he had picked up the film option on the book, and uh, he was intending to, to do it. And I, I rushed back and told Marty Sherwin about this, and the last two weeks later, he died of small cell lung cancer at the age of 84. Wow. But at least he, he died knowing that the film was, you know, in the works. And, uh, you know, Nolan then started filming in February of 2022. And uh, here we are in the summer of 23, and it's uh, it's a blockbuster. It got it out in a year and a half. Now, last question, uh, and you've done a great job, and I really appreciate you coming on here on a sports show, no less. Um, the... The dilemma of the bomb, you, he does not get into it too much. Uh, you know, it, this is not a movie where if you go see it, folks, you're going to have Nolan tell you, well, what a terrible idea it was to drop the bomb. So uh, you're not going to feel that way. It's not, it's not politically motivated from that perspective. It is at the end in the 50s, but now when he's dropping the bomb. And I think leaving the theater yesterday and knowing a little history there, not like you, but knowing a little history... I think, Kai, it was the right for the time, for the moment in time. I think it was the right decision by Truman. I think the end result 50 years, 60, 70 years later is terrible. But considering the fact that Hitler may have gotten it first, Russia may have gotten it, Japan may have gotten it. I think for the time that it was dropped, it was the right call. Do you agree with that? Well, you know, I think 100 years from now, we're going to be arguing about this. Uh, and you'll recall that at one point in the film, Oppenheimer himself says, turns to Edward Teller and says, well, you know, the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, uh, told me just recently, and this is after Hiroshima, that we use these two weapons on an enemy that was al already virtually defeated. And that actually comes right out of 
uh, the transcript of a speech he gave just three months after Hiroshima. So, you know, we're going to argue about this. Uh, Marty and I actually think that that that's right, that the, the war was essentially over and that the Japanese were in the process of surrendering. Um, of course, that didn't mean that they had surrendered. And Truman did make the decision to, he authorized the use of these two weapons on, on two Japanese cities. Um, but Marty and I think that there's good historical evidence that, you know, if the bomb hadn't existed, the Japanese would have surrendered about the same time in August of 1945. And why? Because the Russians had come into the war just that week. And the Japanese hardline generals, that was their worst fear, was to see the Japanese home islands occupied by Bolsheviks. And so they'd prefer to surrender to the Americans than to the Russians. Wow. Anyway, you know, we'll never know. Uh, but uh, as I say, I think 100 years from now, we're going to be, historians are going to be arguing about the evidence. And it, it's just a fascinating mystery story. Yeah, uh, and the one um, scene with Truman and Oppenheimer for five minutes was a rough five minutes for Oppenheimer. Why don't you explain that to him for a couple minutes? Go ahead. That's fascinating. <laughs> with Truman and Oppenheimer, right. He had one, one meeting with President Harry Truman uh, in October of 45, just you know, three months after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And it was Oppenheimer's one opportunity to come into the Oval Office and and pitch to the president his view about what was necessary. He wanted to persuade Truman that what needed to be done now was to engage in uh, arms control talks to ban the bomb and to create a international agency that would have inspection powers to prevent anyone else from acquiring it or using it or turning it into a uh, uh, military arsenal. And of course, he walks into the Oval Office, he starts to make this, this pitch to Harry Truman, and Truman turns to him and says, well, Dr. Oppenheimer, I, uh, when, tell me, when do you think the Russians are going to get the bomb? And Oppenheimer says, well, I, I don't know, but a few years, and Harry Truman interrupts him and again says, well... I know. Never. The Russians will never get it because they're not capable of doing what we did. And at that moment, Oppenheimer understands that the president of the United States doesn't understand that there are no secrets to this weapon. The physics is known and that any country, however poor, is going to be able to get this if they want it. And so in frustration, Oppenheimer says exactly the wrong thing. He turns to Harry Truman and he says, well, Mr. President, I don't think you understand. I feel like I have blood on my hands. And at that moment, of course, and this is all in the film, and it's all historically accurate. We know from diaries and documents at the time. Uh, well, Truman turns to Oppenheimer quite angry and says, you know, well, can I offer you a handkerchief? <laughs> wipe your the blood off your hands. And then he says, uh, you know, 
no one cares who invented this weapon. They only care who decided to use it. And I was the man who decided to use it. Uh, so that's that's a very dramatic scene in the movie and sure in the is. book. Yeah. And it's quite historically accurate. Well, you uh, did a super job uh, writing this. I know I'm about 20 years late, but what the hell? You did a 20, tremendous job. <laughs> he did a tremendous job writing it, and I think the whole world now gets a chance to this movie. And as a result, you and your partner there get a, uh, you know, sort of a second, uh, get a second chance on this wonderful story on a great guy. Well done, Kai. Thanks for a few minutes here. Uh, keep up the great work. Well, I look forward to that Roy Cohen book. I'll read that too. Keep it up. Appreciate you coming on today. Okay. Thank you. Want more Chris Russo? Listen to Mad Dog Unleashed weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM Channel 82. Mad Dog's Daily Bite is part of the Sirius XM Sports Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts.